morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Werbin coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in each and every weekday. You can watch, as always, at danielworkman.com forward slash watch to find all of the ways to see the show. Thanks for tuning in today. Yesterday, after the show aired, news broke from Grant Wall. Uh, He said, breaking U.S. soccer chief legal officer Lydia Walkie has resigned. Her decision comes after the completion of an outside law firm's review of the process of U.S. soccer's now disowned legal strategy, arguing that women inherently had less skill, ability, and responsibility than men. That strategy led to uh, condemnation and the resignation of President Carlos Cordero in March. According to the Federation, they uh, they announced that Walkie will provide consulting services through September 15th, saying, quote, we would like to thank Lydia for all her hard work and dedication during her time with U.S. soccer. New U.S. soccer president Cindy Parlocone called the legal strategy, quote, offensive on March 16th and said, We are going to do a comprehensive review of our internal process to better understand how this breakdown occurred and how it can be avoided in the future. Parlo Cohn, who headed the U.S. Soccer Board's Special Litigation Committee, said she had not seen the the, uh, strategy before its public, public release, though strong indications of that strategy had appeared in previous public filings. U.S. Soccer says it is not in a position to discuss the details of the review or the conclusions reached by the outside law firm on the advice of its legal counsel in the pending lawsuit versus the U.S. Women's National Team players. A source with knowledge of the review said it concluded that Walkie deserved at least some blame for what happened. No U.S. soccer board members are expected to lose their positions following the review. Cindy Parlocone said, quote, it should be clear that while Carlos Cordero did not review or approve of the offensive language in the filing, by personally resigning, he decided to put the best interest of U.S. soccer first. U.S. soccer made a statement to Wall saying, quote, moving forward, substantial legal filings of this nature will be required to be shared with the president, members of our board, and others within the Federation for review in a timely manner to ensure we do not encounter a similar situation where language inserted by outside counsel would be in contrast with the Federation's philosophy and beliefs. All of that is good and well. But Grant went on to say this, and I don't know if you remember, but when all of this news broke, I kept asking and others kept asking, what did they know and when did they know it? Not just Carlos Cordero, but every member of the board of directors. What did they know and when did they know it? 
We still do not have a clear answer on that, but Grant Wall went on to say this. Source connected to U.S. Soccer says that Parlo Cohn was unaware of the offensive language in the March filing that went public and received condemnation from fans, sponsors, and players, but, and this is a big but here, she had been aware of the overall legal strategy based on the February 20th public filing. So, on one hand, she said, I had no idea, and I condemn these offensive statements. This is what she said publicly at the time. But we are now starting to get confirmation to what we we suspected and what I had heard from others within U.S. soccer for a while, which is she knew a lot more than she wanted anyone else to know. She was more aware of the legal strategy and tactics than she claimed when the news broke. You got to remember that Cindy Parlacone has been working within the Federation for a while. In the 2018 presidential election cycle, she was not a member of the Athlete Council, but she served as a sort of liaison to the Athlete Council for the candidates. And she was kind of a gatekeeper and, you know, would, would, would have interviews with the different candidates and, and was involved in the process. She was, she was not an, in a, you know, uh, um, out of the picture. Like she, she has been working within the Federation at some level, either the athlete council or other things for a while. She's been around and involved when, when you look at, you know, status quo, and things that are part of status quo, she has been part of that apparatus for a while. Now, that is not to say that her being aware of the legal strategy means that she agreed with the legal strategy. I want to be clear about this. I am not uh, suggesting that I have heard from any sources that she was in favor of the legal strategy that was uh, was being taken uh, into consideration and put into action against the U.S. Women's National Team. I'm not saying that she was in favor. We don't know one way or the other yet on, on that aspect, and she has not uh, made herself available to, to make public comments on, on answering that question. However, we do now know that her claim of not knowing about the legal strategy before all of this blew up is false. And that's a problem. That's an issue. That is something that is, uh, to me, is disturbing. Um, and it, it, it really goes to the, to the heart of the issue for me, which is I think that the entire board of directors... Uh, is due for turnover 
that we need to see a new board of directors at U.S. Soccer. Uh, if nothing else, just turn the page. There's just been too many mishaps uh, with this and other situations of recent, the way the DA was terminated and, and nothing in its wake and, and just chaos, etc. cetera. I, I think that uh, we have reached a point where that is necessary. It is needed and uh, and I think uh, Carlos Cordero kind of falling on the sword uh, and and being the sacrificial lamb here is not enough. Um, you know, I, I think he did the right thing in resigning, but I think uh, others should should follow suit, not sit there and hold on to power for power's sake. Um, our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Uh, you can learn more about them at, at ducticbrand.com. They are the makers of really, really cool products and apparel. Uh, if you hadn't picked up a shirt, you should do so today at ductickbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of your order at ductickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this morning. We are joined by a friend of ours, a friend of the show, Sam Blackburn, uh, originally from New Zealand. So if you hear this funny accent while he's talking, you'll, you'll know where where he's coming. It's, it's from from the, the, the bottom end of the world, um, but uh, it's now here in the U.S. and he's coaching. And uh, welcome into the show, Sam. How are you? Cheers, mate. No, I'm doing really well. Um, I even... Thanks for the intro. I'm put on the uh, the fern for you just to represent even more. Uh, there you go. Well. So, so tell us uh, before we get into like you know your background in the game and some of your experience growing up in New Zealand. What what originally brought you to the states? How did you in, originally end up here in America? Um, so, I guess that answer is linked to the game as well because. Um, I grew up obviously playing soccer my whole life and uh, 
in New Zealand, we only actually have the one professional team. It's a country of five million people. And soccer is a popular sport, but just the one professional team in the Wellington Phoenix. And so as a talented um, male player, you kind of set your, your eyes on that team. And if, and if uh, that falls through, a lot of boys look at the States as a kind of second option. So um, even before I came out, there's, there's a bit of a history of Kiwis venturing out to take soccer scholarships, the likes of um, Ryan Nelson, Simon Elliott, Andy Boyens, like names that are familiar in the MLS. Um, they, were, they, they started their um, careers as college soccer players. So basically, I was one of those talented players that wasn't quite at the professional level in New Zealand. Um, and then so I made the decision to, to continue my playing career and also get the degree. So um, I, I threw my name out. I, I, I contacted a lot of coaches. I had a lot of coaches contact a lot of coaches on my behalf. Um, and the University Mobile in Alabama was the one that, um, that came calling and, and um, where I ended up. So 2009, I came out as a freshman, um, finished my four years, and then went home again um, where I got a job in the game. Um, moved back purely because uh, during that first stint in the, in the States, I met a girl. So she was the one that managed to pull me back. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so, uh, so the, you know, the, the, the girl, the, the women thing, you know, that, that, that typically can do it for you, right? Yeah, I guess the game was the, what took me here, but the girls what kept me here. So. There you go. There you go. Well, um, growing up in New Zealand, and before you got to this, you know, place of actually going off to college and what brought you to the States, growing up in New Zealand, what, what was the environment like as a, as a youth player? What kind of, you know, training and opportunities? Like, what was that experience like for you? Because uh, in a second, we'll get into, like, what, what you've observed here in the States for youth players growing up. But what was it like for you there in New Zealand? I guess the first thing that I say on that is that New Zealand is an incredibly passionate sporting nation. So we obviously have the All Blacks, the rugby team, which are our, you know our hallmark, our hallmark team. But sport is is huge in New Zealand. Not just rugby, but soccer, sports like cricket, netball, um, basketball, Olympic sports as well. Really, really popular, um, and so. Most kids, I would say, are playing a variety of sports, either either in a club or at, at um, school at an early age. Um, and I was one of the ones that kind of again, you know, threw my head into everything. So I was playing cricket, I was running track, I was I was playing hockey for my school, I was playing ping pong, I was playing tennis. I kind of did it all. And um, soccer was kind of the one that I found myself excelling at, I guess, the most. But I was also a really good cricket player, and it wasn't until I was um, 14 where I actually made the choice. I was playing cricket in the summer and soccer in the winter, and it wasn't actually until I was in my second year of high school that I decided to stop playing cricket and, and play soccer full-time. So I guess that's one of the things that we have as a, a bit of a strength in our country is that the sporting experience is really varied. and. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to develop athleticism 
a non kind of specialized way. And I, I guess I was one of those kids. When it did come time to commit fully to soccer, um, my pathway was, I mean, I was, I was fortunate to um, get into kind of representative football really, really early. Um, and then from there into men's football really, really early. So I was playing senior men's football in Wellington as a skinny little redhead when I was uh, 15 years old. Um, and I guess that's, that's probably one of the biggest um, factors in my development, I'd say, is like venturing into senior football really quickly. Um, from there, I, I was spotted by a couple of fantastic coaches that I had at the time, and they, they saw my, I guess they saw some potential in me. And so I was playing in, in um, really you know, high-performing national league um, senior teams by the time I was 16 as well. So, yeah, I guess there's a there's a there's a broad kind of foundation in multi-sport, and then um, some some really um, important coaches that I had, and then senior football was a really important piece as well. So, in terms of the the playing opportunities for you as a as a player, even prior to 14, what is that kind of integrated in with uh, the school experience or is this like separate clubs, like what most kids are experiencing in America? Uh, so at elementary school, primary school, as we call it back home and um, intermediate school and middle school, as you guys call it here, there's not really any organized, well, there's very, very little organized kind of sport in it. And so most of my development of those early years was done in a club environment. Again, just throughout the, the winter, pretty much. Um, there were some opportunities uh, in the summer to like attend, you know, extra training and things like that. But for the most part, it was really cricket in the summer and soccer in the winter. Um, and the soccer was pretty much largely with, with the club. Um, it wasn't until about... I was 11 or 12 that we got into representative football. So I was able to represent my uh, region. I guess if we compared it to here, it would be representing lower Alabama. So you would take all of the clubs out of lower Alabama and find the best, you know, select the best 11 year olds and they would compete against other parts of Alabama. Um, and then from, from there in the next couple of years, I represented my, um, my federation, which was a, Wellington, the Wellington uh, Federation. So, again, that would probably compare to, like, Alabama. You'd be representing the state. Um, and then from there, that's kind of how it worked. And it was it was kind of a, a nice, smooth kind of pathway, you know. You progress from club to region to federation to, to high-performing teams, just like that. Yeah. In, in terms of the development and – you know, finding the right uh, pathway for players. The, the U.S. Soccer Federation has uh, taken the view that the best uh, 12-year-olds, for example, are, are um, you know, best suited to play uh, uh, with and against the, the best 12-year-olds, and that's the best thing for their development. So it doesn't really matter, you know, like, where you're at, like you're going to, you got to get in a club that may mean you're driving an hour, two hours just for training. 
And then, and then, you know, from there, you got to play with that group and travel around over the course of maybe two, three, four states to play other teams that are, you know, the best 12 year olds. Um, and, and although that is one way to, to provide competition for some 12 year olds, 13 year olds, 14 year olds, et cetera, you know, that are excelling in their local area. Uh, one of the things that, that you brought up, uh, and I've seen this firsthand with, with my own kids, is, is this opportunity of playing with older players, playing in different environments. Uh, we've had guests on the show, uh, some former women's national team players who've talked about as, as young girls playing with the boys and how, how much that shaped their, uh, their development and their, and their pathway as a player and, and, how, and how it helped their uh, you know, a, ability to improve and, and learn skills and do things uh, as a player that, that, you know, they probably wouldn't have had or certainly to that level if they would have just stayed with their age group, you know, playing with, with other girls. So uh, it's interesting that you bring that up, that your own development was at hitting it around 14, 15. Yeah. Now you start playing with the first team. These are, these are grown men. These are adults. Um, you know, there's, there's something to be said there that I think the Federation is missing in making this kind of generic universal, um, not to say that you should never, you know, do that. If you've got enough great 12 year olds in an area of the country and travel's not crazy and it's not too expensive, uh, you know, fine. Yeah. But there's a lot of places in the country, most places in the country, the majority of the country where that's just not a realistic thing to to have local uh, play and consolidate the best 12, 13, 14-year-olds or whatever into one team to be able to provide that kind of development pathway and what's best for them. And so I think, I think we should look at, um, you know, taking kids and, and who are, you know, really good for their age, for their local context and going, Rather than, hey, driving an hour and a half or two hours or whatever to, to be a part of this other project, this other club, uh, where we're going to try to bring in and recruit the best players from the, you know, five-hour radius or whatever, mm. let's, let's have a conversation with the parents about having this 12-year-old play with the 13- or 14-year-olds, having, you know, some of these girls that are excelling at their age group, maybe they play up with their with a with a, a higher age girls team or they play with the same age boys team or taking a a, a a young boy who maybe physically isn't fully uh you know hasn't hit puberty isn't fully developed so to take him at 12 and playing with 14 year olds may not make sense but what if he played with 13 year old girls or 14 year old girls would that level maybe work um and i know it's been a little taboo here in, in, in the States to, to not think that way, but I think there are other creative solutions um, to providing the right developmental environment for each player that we should be thinking out of the box to do. Um, one of the things that I know as, as coaches we run into, especially a coach like you, I, I have the, this as well in, in dealing with a pool of players, you've got, a whole wide range of, of a spectrum players yeah. who, who are further along in their developmental pathway and cycle than some other players. What have been some challenges as you've, as you've engaged in that 
uh, in your coaching, uh, what has been some challenges for you as a coach to be able to help those that are not as far along, uh, you know, progress and improving it better while at the same time challenging those who are maybe the better players in that age group and in that pool to continue to get better? It's a great question. I, um, back home we have uh, the, the coach education pathway has a, a course called the, the junior level one. And it's a, a course which, is, which I has delivered. I, I was one of the ones that actually got to deliver it for a few years. Um, aimed at kind of mums and dads, recreational beginner coaches. Big part in the, uh, of that course is a, a, a few slides on what we call dealing with difference. So it's obviously a, a, a challenge which is not just you know restricted to the US. It's a challenge I'm sure coaches around the world face. But um, in that kind of course, we talk about those kids that are striving to keep up and the ones that are forging ahead and then the ones in the middle that are kind of coping, so they're coping fine. Um, and the way in which I was kind of taught to, to, to manage that was to try and firstly, um, and this is what I've tried to do since I've, since I've been here and I've been in a, you know, had, had that, uh, a pole team and other teams with, with varied ability. Um, first, got to kind of put a lot of time and a lot of effort into your planning um, to ensure that whatever kind of session uh, topic or theme that you're talking about is going to be appropriate for all the kids and not just um, some of the kids. Um, and I think more often than not, I'll, I'll pitch and I'll design the session a little lower then maybe, you know, I'll design the session a little lower than what I would for if I had a whole group of kids that are just coping. And I, I feel like that helps me because it will simplify the message for all of them. And then I can spend the majority, the, the remainder of the time kind of challenging the ones that are forging ahead, if you get where I'm going. So I think design and, and, um, and planning is the key for something like that. And then <clears throat> pitching the session relatively low and then using your ability as a coach to really push the ones that, that need it from within a kind of simplified session design. Does that make sense? Kind of? Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, one of the things I've uh, experienced with this and, and, and have tried to implement is, is I will typically use a lot of, um, you know, different variables in you know, running the same session. So, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, let's say there's a group of players that are not as far along as another group of players. So maybe we're, we're doing a passing session or a rondo session. So instead of asking them to complete, you know, 10 passes, I'm asking them to complete five passes mm -hmm. where they're, they're still filling a level of success. We're still asking them to compete and work and, and, and play and enjoy uh, their training, but we're not putting so high demands on them that they just get frustrated and they're like, I can't do this. I can't keep up and, and, and want to just quit. And yeah. then on, on the other side, those who maybe can handle it, we, we change those, you know, numbers around. So maybe instead of the five, we're looking at 10 or 15. Uh, I know that there would be, there's times where, um, I'll have one group that's, that's working on, um, you know, a, a playing out from the back type of Rondo session 
where, you know, I'm, I'm asking them to, to complete a certain number of passes on one side of the field so that they get an understanding of, of positioning to support the ball. Um, and I feel like they can, they can connect a higher number before they go to make a switch to the other side of the field. And, and when the lower group comes in, um, you know, they're, they're not asked to, to, to do that as high of a yeah. high of amount, high of a level. So I think there's some ways that, that you can take a session, like you, like you mentioned, Hey, we're going to work on these fundamental aspects of the game, whatever they are, and use that and use some variables to challenge appropriately at each kind of level of the spectrum, whether you're the, the A group, the B group, or what I call the AB group, which you were talking about the coping group, that kind of group in the middle. Yeah. Um, we, the, the biggest, the biggest takeaway that we try to get coaches on that junior level one course was to not be afraid of giving a different challenge within the same session, within the same plan. Don't be afraid to give a different challenge to the, to different players. So like, like you mentioned, it might be as simple as a rondo and you might just say, you know, move the ball around the rondo however you want. But for those kids that are forging ahead, you might just walk around and, you know, whisper in the air, hey, can you try and play one touch when, when possible? You might not give that challenge to every single player, um, you, but as, as long as you start with something simple, then you, I, I feel like more comfortable using individual interventions or individual challenges to, push those ones ahead without leaving the other ones behind by, by pitching the, the session too high, if you get what I mean. Absolutely. And I think that's where, where a lot of the, the coaching education um, in America has really kind of missed something, and that is the art of coaching, like man management, you know, having, having the ability to – to get all of your players excited to play, excited to train, eager to, to, to even work on their own, to, to, to do different things like that. It, it's, it's easy to sit there with a, you know, a whiteboard or a, a you know, a ductic brand notebook and, and, you know, sketch out a session and go, Hey, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to run. Um, blah, 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 X's and O's, you know, yada, 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 tactics for days, technical skills for days but there's a, there's an art form to like how you manage players, whether yeah. it's that, that one-to-one interaction, whether it's taking a group of four or five or six players and, and, and teaching them and putting into, uh, into a training session, certain scenarios that shape them that they, maybe they can handle versus some other players. And, and it's not always black and white. I mean, you know, I, I can see, uh, at times when I've run sessions where maybe it's the topic that we're working on that night or, or something that we're emphasizing that there's some players, you know, for example, I'll use like the, their weaker foot, for example, there's some players that are more comfortable to use both feet and there's some players that aren't uh, as comfortable. And so, you know, ev- even in that setup, that doesn't always translate to the person with that's comfortable with both feet is, the best player, they may be somewhere in the middle, but it's still having to work through the nuance of that in that session and kind of being able to identify. So I think observations, communications, um, and, and not being so rigid in like this player is, is identified as this, whether that's, you know, 
the bottom end of the spectrum, middle or the top. It's having an open mind and, and, and letting the players in how they train on their own and how they train in, in training sessions really be the ones that kind of uh, provide their own evaluations of who they are, where they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think even before that, and uh, I think this is something that our, our club does really well, is to have a, a culture and for every coach to have an individual mindset that you have a duty of care to every single player in your care. And all each and every one of those little people deserve coaching, you know? So like I we was saying before, it would be very easy for me to, to take a, a very group and, and pitch a high, you know, an advanced session for them that I know the ones that the, that a forging head will be able to, to do and, and will help push them on. But in doing so, I'm, I'm, I'm likely to leave others behind. I might even lose some kids to the game if I do that consistently. So I always, I always try and remember that, like, these are children and they all deserve, they all deserve my, my attention and my coaching. And you know what? They, at the end of the day, the effect that we will have on those top ones, I, I don't even know if I could put a percentage on, on what it would be, but in a lot of ways, those kids are going to make it anyway. And it's, and it's actually a large degree of success for a youth coach should come from keeping those ones that are striving to keep up in the game long-term. There's another thing that we, I, I feel like as a strength of, of um, football in New Zealand is that um, the national body and the federations um, underneath that national body put a lot of time and love and care into the rec player. Um, they understand that the high performance, uh, you know, high performance football landscape really only makes up 2% of total of total football. And so the 98%, which actually puts money in the coffers of New Zealand football and the federations is the ones that, you know, deserve as much attention and, and um, and effort from from their leaders as as uh, as they can get. You know what I mean? So so what does that uh, look like for New Zealand football? Like how do they show that love and a care, love and care and attention to the you know community soccer player, the 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 non you know Ameri in American soccer we've got a label for everything. You know, elite, premier. You know, I just make fun of all the labels all the time, um, but you know, the, these players are not in the elite premier super duper travel, you know, premium, whatever, um, yeah. you know, club league, etc. that these are your community based rec type player. Uh, so how, how does New Zealand, you know, approach that group and provide that care and attention? Can I do a screen share? I've got actually, I've got something up here that I'll sure. earlier that, uh, might be able to explain a little bit better than me, but this is, um, can you see that? Yep. So this here is actually a picture of, um, yeah, the national player development framework. And so within it, you can kind of see where rec and everything kind of fits. Um, and down the bottom there you have your, you know, your phases of play much like the, the English FA. Um, but, as you can see, everyone's important and, and all these white lines kind of signify how every single part of the landscape is linked. You know, it's a full framework. Uh, rec isn't separate from community football and community football isn't separate from talent football. 
Um, my job that I had when I was uh, I was back home as a as a development officer was actually largely in in this space. You know, I was I was working to try and bridge the gap between the rec and the and the community participation and and push it into the talent um, perform kind of space. So. This is a this is kind of a fundamental um, framework that that the national body uses and, and it filters down pretty well into the federations as well. So, what I would enough, you what would be some of the things that that would you know be done by the federation and in the national association, but it, even in in the, the the local federations to you know really provide you know resources or you know, um, instruction, whatever to, to that level of play to try to, you know, focus, uh, in attention on that, you know, lowest level of, of the player pyramid and pathway. Okay. Uh, I guess the first thing that sticks out with that question is that, and, and this is in comparison to the U S is that everyone in this green space here, well, one, two, and three, they all pay the same amount to participate in football throughout a season. Unless you want extra kind of the, the skill center here, they might cost a little bit extra for the kind of kids that are, that are after a little bit more. But everyone in this space here pays the same amount for football. And, and compa again, in comparison to, new, to the USA, it's very, very cheap. Like we're talking $200 for a 20-week um, you know, season. Um, and that, that includes the cost of your, your shirt and your, and your shorts. So I guess that's one of the first and most powerful things that, um, that support this kind of framework is that it's, it's, a, it's accessible to everybody. Um, and then I guess the next thing would be that, um, the, you know, in order, you know, th these, these players are all made up from these players here and, and, you know, no one ever, forgets that you know you can't have talented players without community players you know they, they all come from the same they all come from number one so new zealand football and the federations try and put a lot of love and a lot of effort into this part of the game more so than we really do into this part of the game up here so in terms of like let's say coaching resources coaching education yeah. things that are are generally um, you know, handled in, in, with a lot of volunteers, a lot of, um, you know, masses of people, right? Uh, you know, your lowest cost, kind of highest participation rates. You, you mentioned the 98% um, of, the, of the country was kind of more in that level of the pyramid. So what, it, what, are, what, what were kind of some of the resources available, coaching education available to those uh, clubs and, and teams and coaches. Yeah. So, uh, my job actually was one of those resources. I, I was lucky. Like I said, as soon as I graduated from the university of Mobile, I went back to New Zealand and I managed to get a job as a, I was a football development officer. That was my name. That was my title. Um, and there were about 25 of us, I would say spread out around the country. And we were funded by, a combination of New Zealand football and Sport New Zealand, which is the, the federal government, the national government. Our salaries were paid um, in combination of 
those two those two entities and our job like i said was pretty much on this left hand side of of the framework we were put to work to to develop and grow and improve the quality of football purely on this side here we we every now and again we would coach the odd like um talented player but 90 percent of our work was done on this side here so we were the ones that would go around the clubs and conduct coaching courses for mums and dads um we would be the ones that would run holiday programs um you know camps and things like that um and communities which couldn't you know couldn't run them themselves again our, our job was was here because we realized that this is actually where the talent is made you know and in all honesty we had enough knowledge and enough experience um and enough resources to to kind of accommodate for this side anyway and even when we were putting all of our money and time and resources into this side we weren't actually doing very well anyway we weren't qualifying for world cups we weren't qualifying for olympic games um we weren't even playing a very nice brand of football so New Zealand football and the and, and like I said, Sport New Zealand made this decision. I think the football development officer program started in um, probably like 2010, 2011, when all of this was put into into place. And so, the country put all of their time, money, and resources into here. And I'm biased because I was one of them, but I feel like it's had a really positive effect on um, football development and the quality of football in New Zealand. Um, our our under-20s just had their um, highest, you know, their best finish in an under-20 World Cup ever. Um, we we had a, a boy from that team sign for Bayern Munich. Um, we've had a bunch others, of, of others sign for professional clubs. Um, and I just think that it's a it's a result of putting time and money into, you know, and experience and knowledge into grassroots into into community football. So, in looking at that, uh, for the for the American system that you're coaching in currently, mm. uh, what what would that translate to? Like, how would you take a program where you were a you know an, an fdo fo football development officer what, what would that look like here in, in america compared to you know what we what we have what we experience on a daily basis uh, i guess what, what i would start with especially here in um, alabama is another part of the the role of the football development officer was in um, club development so we would go in and support clubs in developing their vision and philosophies and, and designing five-year plans for the clubs and um you know really basic stuff like developing role descriptions for staff members and things like that um putting developing products such as um you know after school programs or holiday programs and things like that too so i think that's one area where the, the U, there's a bit of um, an opportunity for u.s soccer is in club development and i don't know how much the technical directors of each state or, or U.S. soccer as a, as a national body actually do to help grow these community clubs. I know there's a lot of talk and a lot of effort put into the high performance space and, and there should be, but I, like I said like, uh, before, I don't think that there is a high performance space without a community and a, a, you know, a 
community space. So that's where all the time and the resource should really start. That's where the most of it should be going if you really want a solid foundation for your football landscape. So looking at the American system, the, the system you're coaching in at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, what do you think are some key uh, things that clubs around the country could do or should be doing, or at least thinking about doing to, you know, to be better at, at being a club. You mentioned the five-year plan. You mentioned, you know, some of the strategic things that you guys would do in terms of, you know, defining roles, et cetera. What, what are some, some of those things that if you were to wear your football development officer hat for just a minute and, and let's just drop you in a club somewhere, you know, in, in the U S and, and say, Hey, take a look, what do you think? What are some things that you would be looking for that would help, you know, a, a club that's trying to figure out how do we get better at being a club? Well, I guess um, the, the first thing, and I'm kind of harping on a bit about it right now, but is to support the rec programs a little bit more. I think that there's a, there's a divide, there's a little bit of a um, – us versus them kind of approach sometimes to, to rec soccer and a lot of clubs that I've seen. And so I would like to see, I would like to see more clubs kind of bring them in a little bit more and, and understand that there's no, there's, there's actually no real way to tell what a talented player looks like when they're nine or 10 anyway. So increasing the pull at that grassroots level, I think is really, really important. Um, and then as well, I think just really defining, um, I think clubs can define their mission a little bit more in their, in their vision. And I think that um, in, incorporating some elements of the community into that is an important, important piece. And another thing that I'm kind of proud of with our club that we work in at the moment, we kind of see that we wouldn't be where we are without our communities. And um, they are the, the foundation to our club. And, so I think that's a that's a that's an opportunity for a lot of clubs, and 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 again, just reiterating what I said, maybe actually having a, a look at how much, what percentage of your club really is high performance, really, you know, how how much is it really, and how how much resource and time are you dedicating to, you know, your your ratio, your percentages, are you putting eighty percent of your time and effort into the ten percent when really it should be a little bit the other way. I think that, that, that can be something that clubs can, can look at as well. In terms of what you guys had in New Zealand, uh, that, you know, these clubs that, that had kind of the, the rec level and maybe what you're, you're talking like the talent or high performance level or whatever. Um, what was, what was the setups of those clubs Were were the, 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 the clubs playing like in-house uh, leagues were they traveling and playing other you know local clubs um, you know w what was the landscape there for um, a club in in New Zealand versus you know a typical kind of what, what I've generally seen is a definition or demarcating line for you know soccer clubs at youth soccer in America is basically like if we play in an in-house league we're considered rec if we're playing in a, you know, a, a travel club, then that means that we get 
the, we get to travel around to other towns or other local clubs and, and play against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, what was the experience like in, in New Zealand with that rec level program with the club? Is it, is it something that was still playing in house or is it something that was playing around the, the area? It, it, this is another thing which I, I'm still trying to get my head around in the USA with is the, the game stru- structure and the, the lack of a organized league season, even, you know, with the, with the kids. Um, in New Zealand, you have uh, – in New Zealand, you have the, a, a youth club and um, all of the ages are still separated by ability. You, you, you have your rec players and they might play for a, a C team and then you'll have your stronger players. Let's take a ninth grade, for example, under, under 10s. You'll have a, a, a ninth grade A, you might have a ninth grade B, depending on the size of your club. You might have a ninth grade C. All of those teams will play in at the same amount of games and um, they're all over, you know, you play all over the region, but what, the region I'm from, Wellington's not, not a very big region. You wouldn't have to drive more than an hour to play your games. Um, and, and this is probably the biggest strength that I think New Zealand has in comparison to the US is that all of these games are organized and scheduled by the federation. So you, as a club, you'll, you'll let the federation know at the start of the season how many teams you have in each, uh, each age group. You'll say, we have three ninth grade teams this year. They'll say, okay, we have across the region, we have, I don't know, 30 ninth grade teams of all at varied uh, levels. And they'll put it into a computer and go, boom, bang, bang, bang. There's a 20-game season for each of your three levels, home and away, 10 games in each or, or whatever it is. And so it seems to me, I, I mean, I used to work with the people that would do it, competitions administrators, and it seemed like, a lot of the, it was a few clicks of the button, you know, but, and, and all of a sudden you would have complete seasons for every single kid in the region. Um, so I, I don't really, I still don't really understand why that's not possible here. Um, I understand that, the, you know, New Zealand was unique in the fact that we're a smaller country and we actually have quite a large number of soccer clubs per capita. So, there's plenty of competition available, but I think that that's something that needs to be looked at here as well is finding regular, you know, scheduled seasons for these players rather than just asking clubs to enter tournaments or find, you know, pick up games however, however they can. I'd like to see someone take a little bit more responsibility for the, for the game schedules of the, of the kids teams here. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the, uh, you know, in the absence of guidance and direction and, and, and proper systems and structures, we've, you know, allowed for these kind of crazy three-eyed monsters uh, yeah. in, in American youth soccer, whether it's, you know, all of the, the tournaments or uh, what I consider to be, like, extremely excessive travel. Um, and, and, you know, and, and rather than keeping the, the, the main thing, the main thing, which is allowing the kids to play, you know, get out and play. And, and again, it was, we talked about earlier in, in, in this interview, 
you know, if you find a kid or a few kids that are just, you know, far and away above a level that, that is available to them at their own age group, there are things you can do Mm -hmm. for, for those players. There are some things that you can do. You don't, it doesn't not have to mean that, the kid's got to get in the car and drive four hours to go start playing games. There, there's yeah. other ways to go about it. Um, you know, my, my oldest son has been playing with this group of adult Latinos every weekend uh, until the pandemic hit, um, you know, since he was 10. And, uh, you know, the age ranges out there are, are pretty drastic. I mean, 10, 15, 20, 30-year, you know, age gaps out there. Um, but it's been incredible for him and development and his understanding of the game his playing, uh, of the game. And, um, and, and he's played up within the club for, for, um, many years. Uh, and, and I, I just view all those things as, as helpful to his, uh, his development where, you know, the other option would have been, Hey, I've got to find, if I just was married to the idea that I've got to keep him with the same 13 year olds, the same 14 year olds, whatever, then I would have, I would have had to pack him up and and drive him four hours away or six hours away or whatever, till I found a place that had enough of, of that age group that were, you know, around the same level for him to train with. And then, and then, you know, travel around and play games with. So, um, you know, I, I think that we could do things smarter. I, and I love the, the, the slide that you shared about, you know, your work in New Zealand, because I, I do think there's a lot of opportunities for solutions in American soccer. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there are people that are trying to listen. They're trying to learn. They're trying to, to do the right things. We're just not quite there yet in terms of, uh, executing on those decisions or those ideas. I still think there's a lot of them that we're, we, you know, for whatever reason, we've just not fully grasped, you know, the potential of substantive, positive, structural change. Um, and, and one of the ones that you just mentioned, I think is a key point is, you know, localize as much as possible the, the travel of these youth, these youth players find ways to challenge um if it's pool training if it's um you know a a kid that's excelling you know bump him up you know if he if he's nine years old and he's just crushing all the nine-year-olds let him play with the 10-year-olds or you know like i said there's things that you can do to kind of help that along um i just think we got to be a little bit more creative there we had a system in our um the capital football federation that i work for around kids playing up so it was a it was allowed but again we were we were part of our job as a development officer was to monitor those kids that were you know those those clubs that were wanting kids to play up so and in order for them to do it because we had complete control of the leagues and the games that they were playing we would ask them to they would have to fill out what was known as a dispensation form so a 12-year-old, the club would write, oh, we would like dispensation for this 12-year-old to play in the 14th grade. And they would all come across our desks and on a case-by-case basis, we would, we would um, sign off on those or we would, we would reject those. Um, so I think, yeah, I think 
I don't want this to come, sound to come off as a slight on, on, on any particular like entity or organization, but I think if the states and US soccer are truly in the business of player development, then they need to take a really hard look at how they are controlling the function of matches, of games. That to me is, is step number one. Like at the moment, the clubs, you can do whatever you want. You can play against whoever you want. Kids can play when, you know, in whatever age they want. There's no one really monitoring it at all. You can enter a tournament on a Wednesday and then enter another tournament on a Saturday if you want throughout the summer. There seems to be no real quality control at the, at the community grassroots level around the organization and structure of, of matches, of games of, and of seasons. So I think that needs to kind of come before any coaching courses or anything like that. I'd like to see people take a little bit more responsibility for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I do think that's a, a major area where the Federation, uh, you know, with the, the recent announcement of the cancellation, termination of the Development Academy, uh, my argument was it, it didn't go far enough. Uh, it, it wasn't... Again, to me, it seems like they have it fine on that end. But again, that's what? 2% of the players. It's not even... Not even 2%. I mean, it was, yeah. it was less than 1% of the players that were a part of that program. And, and yet, you know, there's all this, you know, stink and all blue about the program and the termination program. And it was just keep going. Like you start it, but the scale of the project needs to continue to go all the way down, uh, not just for the, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the player. Finish the job and take it all the way out to the hundred percent of the players. Yeah, um, I mean, for me, and again, this is from my experience back home as well, there are always going to be people who put time and effort and money into the talented people. If you really want to grow the game and increase the the base, like the the the, the average quality of the players, put the money and the time and the resource into the, the biggest percentage of players, and that's the community and the players, in my opinion. And I think it starts there, and I think then it, and then the next step has to be making sure that you're putting quality control measures around the how many, you know, getting them games and regular games and making sure that they're the right games. Um, and then we can talk about things like, you know, moving players up and down depending on their individual needs. So, yeah. I see so much about this DA stuff and, and, and it's great, but again, I think it'll always be well looked after. Who's looking after the rest, you know? Yep. That's a great point. And I great, great place for us to end uh, today is looking at the whole, not just the few, um, which is, seems to be, unfortunately, running theme of soccer, um, the, the few at the expense of the many. Uh, and we need to, to get it the other way around. Um, and, and I pretend that we have it all together any, either, but by the way. We're like, I think we're outside the top 100 in the FIFA rankings at the moment. So. Well, the, the, men, right, the women are doing good. Yeah. So, uh, look, there's always challenges and, and, you know, you guys are, are like the size of, you know, the city of Atlanta for the entire country. So, um, you know, there, there's always challenges everybody's got to deal with. Uh, our problem is we've got so many people in such a big country that it just seems like we haven't had enough leadership to really 
fully wrap our arms around what needs to happen. Yeah, that's um, something that I, I um, appreciate as well. Things are a lot easier back home when you have a little bit of a smaller population and a little bit less geography. But then it's, it's not impossible here. And I think there are enough people that care and are passionate about the sport and about the kids that we can get it done. Yep, I agree. Well, Sam, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Um, look forward to having you back on again soon. And hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, this pandemic, you know, dies down and kids and coaches and parents can get back uh, to the sport that we love on the field and not just um, waiting and hoping and, and, and Zoom training and Zoom calls and so on and so forth that we can get actually back to the to the sport we love on the field. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me, Dan. All right, my man. See ya. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching the show and watching it. All week long, we appreciate it each and every weekday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch at DanielWorkman.com forward slash watch. Hope you have a great weekend. We look forward to seeing everyone again on Monday. Goodbye.